This episode is brought to you by Charcoal Book Club. Charcoal's call for entries to the fourth annual Chico Hot Springs Portfolio Review and Publishing Prize is still open, but the deadline is approaching. Submit your work now through December 9th for a chance to be one of the 58 artists invited to spend the week in Montana with Alessandra Sanguinetti, Jim Goldberg, Vanessa Winship, Todd Heido, Awoiska Vandermolen, Raymond Meeks, and 15 of the most respected publishers and organizations in contemporary photography. Attending artists receive formal portfolio reviews by speakers and reviewers, artist lectures, panel discussions, peer reviews, and additional evening programming over the seven-day event. One grand prize winner will be awarded the Charcoal Publishing Prize and will be published and distributed worldwide by Charcoal Book Club. For more information and to apply, visit ChicoReview.com. I'm Jordan Weitzman and you're listening to Magic Hour. It was the last day of Alan Frame's show in Amorato at the Pratt Gallery in Brooklyn, and it was my first stop from LaGuardia when I arrived that day. I remember one print hanging on the wall which I immediately gravitated to. Tito, Florence. A photo which I've always loved, which feels so intimate, even though it's made at a distance. A charming southern fellow in the gallery introduced himself. Alan Frame, nice to meet you. I smiled and we ended up talking for about an hour that day, going down rabbit holes ranging from the Italian seaside where he had just made new work, to Charles Henry Ford's attic apartment in the Dakota, to William Faulkner's Absalom Absalom, a story he hadn't read since college, amazed at how homoerotic a narrative it had. Alan Frame is a fascinating figure in the world of photography. He cut his teeth in the early 70s in Boston with his friends David Armstrong and Nan Golden, whom he met at Imageworks, a photo program he enrolled in while attending Harvard. He's made his own pictures on and off over the course of five decades, but he's also worked in the theater, adapting the writing of David Wernerovich and acting in Gary Indiana plays. He's written for publications like Bomb and the New York Times, he's taught at Pratt SVA and ICP, and he's worked in curatorial capacities. When we got together at his apartment in Sunnyside, Queens, we started talking about ideas around photographing people. This incredible way someone looks is part of what draws you to them so that in the pictures you might edit accordingly, you know? Mm-hmm. You could edit for whether they're embodying that thing that attracted you or for some reality in the narrative mm-hmm. or for even composition, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I think a sense of beauty and a broad definition of it comes into it for sure. I mean, you know, if there's somebody that I'm photographing who I'm drawn to because I think they're, you know, amazing looking or striking or whatever. I mean, obviously I'm not choosing to work with models, so I'm not looking for that kind of ideal. But um, if the frame that I choose to represent them by shows them in that way, you know, I will go with that one versus another one, but but it's never just as sim- simple as that, of course. And you know that it's just the whole thing, the whole picture. Does it work? Right. I mean, there's this uh, really striking Serbian woman that I met in Rome who I photographed, and so far I don't have one picture that shows that shows just how beautiful I think she is, because it's whatever angle or profile picture in the end is the one that worked. If I could, I would, but, you know, it's all about the whole picture. Of course. And I don't know why I have, I personally have this preoccupation or I think a lot about how people, the subjects that one photographs, especially in situations when you're close to them. I have this in my head and I don't know if it's a silly thing to have in my head or not, but... I almost feel that what people are most concerned about is their own vanity. People, when they see a picture of themselves, are not so concerned necessarily about the same things that you might be as an artist. I'm just wondering how you kind of think about that, if that's ever a concern of someone... Some of of the most important subjects that I photographed, they were indifferent to the work. There was this guy that I photographed extensively in Mississippi in the 70s my first big subject, I guess. And it was not just him, but the context, the world that he was in. And 
he was kind of psychic and really into all that sort of stuff. And he would look at those pictures as almost like tarot imagery. Mm-hmm. That's something that he could read, read in a sort of psychic way. There was kind of a suspension of vanity and more like, what is this saying? But not what is this saying in a rational way, but what is this saying? Um, what is this, the metaphysical subtext? It was very odd. And he never asked for any of the pictures. He never, he just didn't want them, you know. I mean, he oh. had, was not that material a person. And then I, I had this show of, my pictures of my mother and my grandmother's pictures of her and some pictures of my sister also and some pictures of my grandmother. But the the show centered around my mother who had been photographed extensively by her mother when she was growing up. And she just didn't comment. She was as, as if she were nonplussed by the attention. But... She loves the attention. Mm-hmm. She doesn't. She's not interested in the results. I did this video when my father was ill two weeks before he died, and he was at home with cancer. And my mother and brother and I were all in the house. And so my video is really more about my mother and brother, and a lot of it is funny. Neither my mother nor brother ever asked me why I was doing this or what I was going to do with it, or later what I had done with it. And when I finally showed it to my brother, his comment was something like, well, which is kind of dismissive, like, I don't know what to say about this. (laughs) And my mother's was just, I mean, she was looking at every frame in a sense of vanity also, but I think she was just processing the objective part of the regard for the situation. And I thought she would cry hysterically at some point in it or right afterwards because it goes through his funeral. And she she didn't. I mean, because I do. I cry every time I see it at a certain point. And she didn't. And she got through like completely straight. And then maybe two minutes later is when that happens. But... She never asked to see it again. She doesn't remember it now. Mm-hmm. I'm curious. What was your upbringing like? You grew up in Mississippi. Yeah, I had an older brother and an older sister. My mother had a kindergarten at home. So I was in it from the age of two and a half with the other five-year-olds. year five year olds. Mm-hmm. So I graduated every year <laughs> without graduating. Uh-huh. I was really into movies and movie stars and movie narratives creating my own like casts and titles and plots and award ceremonies Mm -hmm. and things like that and subscribe to fanzines and i even got the weekly variety as a christmas present every year from my parents Mm -hmm. And the other thing was architecture. Like I collected all these house plans and put them in notebooks and built little houses out of like something like Lego, but a little bit more intricate. Mm-hmm. And I got more and more of those materials so I could build bigger and bigger houses, you know. And I would say I did that up through the sixth grade, and I really wanted to be an architect. And then um, my parents took us all to get these aptitude tests that were done by this laboratory that did a lot of testing of people and professions to see what skill sets match certain professions and so on and so on. And so they also said that I was too young to be tested, really, in a valid way. But nevertheless, those tests kind of indicated that I would not be happy doing all the things that I wanted to do at the time. Yeah, I recently ran into the results of those when I was in Florida visiting my mother. And looked at them and was so shocked that there are certain things that I remembered were my results that were actually my mother's. And I thought, I spent my whole life thinking that I, oh, I scored this skill set. And actually, I didn't. It's what my mother scored. I mean, it's so bizarre because Mm -hmm. 
those results, she was so fixated on those results that she would even say that into my 20s. It's like, you can't be a photographer because you'd never want to be alone in the darkroom. <laughs> Which probably drove you a bit crazy. I mean, I just had to learn, you know, by the, by the time I was 20, I guess, I, I began to realize that, like, I had to have my own ideas about everything that it was going to be. But from an early age, there were art interests. Yeah, mostly through film. We had a very few art books at home. I loved them, but I didn't think of myself as an artist until maybe as a senior in high school, I was trying to write an adaptation of a Faulkner novel as a screenplay and thinking that maybe I wanted to be a filmmaker. But in college, I studied art history and English and couldn't get into the film classes or the photo classes. I wasn't in that major. But why didn't I just major in that? Because I didn't think I was an artist, you know? This was at Harvard. Yeah. So I wound up taking a photo class outside of Harvard. Mm-hmm. Which is how I met Nan Golden, actually. Hmm. So you guys became friends there and you started hanging out. Yeah. Were you all pretty serious about being photographers at that point? Yeah. As young as we were, um, we did have, you know, ambitious ideas about who we might become. And her examples really were, I mean, originally when she was doing the black and white drag queen stuff, she was thinking of great fashion photographers. But she also saw a lot of films. She was aware of Larry Clark, Arbus, as I was. And, you know, there was not really a market for photography, but still for decades, you could still be known for your photographic work, even if no one was collecting it. You know, there might be a book, but you, there would be a reputation. I mean, you know, Arbus was quite... I mean, I guess just from having a show at MoMA and some of her magazine work was a certain kind of luminary in spite of the fact that she had no sales Mm -hmm. by the time she died, you know. She was a big... You'd seen an early show of hers and it had a big impact on you, right? Yeah. um, The big show at MoMA hadn't happened yet, but I, I saw her work in a group show at Harvard. One of the first exhibitions of fine art photography that I had seen and she was in it and Emma Gowan was in it and two other photographers you know I think any magazine that had any of her work I just had to get you know I was really following her so those are those are two interesting counterpoints because Arbus would always well aside from the aesthetic qualities the brashness of maybe Arbus's pictures and the softer qualities of Emma Gowan's pictures but in terms of their subject matter Arbus always went out into the world. She photographed strangers, and Emmett Gowan photographed people who were close to him. I think what they had in common was this kind of piercing psychological connection Mm -hmm. that they were in portraiture. They were making portraits. The kind of sense of an intimate psychological perspective came into photography post-war, you could see it in Robert Frank's The Americans, even if those are strangers, mm-hmm. that there's some sense of uh, psychological feeling in the situation. And it just kind of increased, you know. And then by the 70s, we had these examples of a few people, you know, like Arvis and Larry Clark, who were revealing that in different ways. And Gowan, Emmett Gowan. Actually, Emmett Gowan was more of an influence than Arbus on me mm-hmm. because the work was in the South and I also was photographing people that I knew. So it helped me go back to the South after Harvard to photograph, to know that, you know, it validated that material. Mm-hmm. I'm always so interested in the thinking and the psychology behind the work. I think with really good work, you sometimes get a sense that an artist is speaking to you in a very kind of intimate way. 
I think I've always got that sense with your pictures is that they have this ability to place you somewhere in a scene. It's a very ethereal quality that is a very difficult thing to achieve. I remember thinking at a certain point, maybe it was uh, when I became a teacher, which I didn't start doing until I was in my 40s. Mm-hmm. So I was conscious of how people might think of me versus how they might think of my work. But I always felt that um, the work is darker than the personality that I project. Mm-hmm. Part of which I think is because having been reared in the South, I think in the South people understand that there's this surface layer of comportment, but the reality is underneath. In New York, people are taken at face value. And in New York, you know, terrible behavior on the surface is usually rewarded. It's intimidating and people buy into it. Mm-hmm. So I feel like, in a way, I've been misread. Because of the discrepancy between your work and who you actually feel that you are? Yeah, the, the discrepancy between my persona and the work. Just in a superficial way, you know, by people that never get to know me that well. But I think Southerners in New York are very misread. Mm-hmm. If I, for instance... I didn't know Peter Hujar that well, but I did know him over a certain number of years. And, you know, there was this very full-bodied dignity. The work is just this, like, has so much depth and integrity and glamour. And in person, I mean, I suppose I would have seen a deeper side of him if I got to know him better, but... You know, there was this, like, superficial edginess. There was this sort of boyishness in an older man that felt a little bit like a snarly immaturity. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought of him as someone, like, standing on the edge of a situation, being very critical and snarky. But obviously, you know, there was a lot more to him than that. And the pictures, it's all there, you know. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm sure in his close relationships, people felt, you know, the whole thing. But I was just reading this interview I did with Nan in the late 80s over, you know. And she talks about screaming at some curator she was working with in Arl, who maybe she had exhibited some bad behavior and they seemed shocked or whatever and she was just like trying to tell them who do you think I am I'm not like this nice girl mm-hmm. I'm you know Arvis's Jewish giant <laughs> that's what she said Jew- Arvis's Jewish giant yeah yeah <laughs> she referenced that photo and she was screaming that yeah you know? oh, I love that photo I've read a couple of your other interviews. It's something you've always done also. You've always conducted interviews with other, with other artists. In the mid-80s, I started writing magazine articles for Japanese magazines <laughs> from London. I mean, very esoteric. <laughs> when I came back to New York in 87, I started writing journalistically. And my contacts were Japanese so they were asking for like profiles on certain movie stars and and certain art figures so that's why I did Nan but um, then I remember in the 90s I did that one with Charles Henry Ford and it was so difficult to do that interview how come? he was in his 80s and I wasn't sure he remembered the incidents or the anecdotes as much as he remembered the tale, having told it over many decades mm-hmm. to many people. Mm-hmm. You know, so there was something very canned about it all. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, as I'm saying that, I'm also aware of having said some of the same things I'm saying now. Right. But so we had to do it over three sessions, and then I was surprised when I edited it how fresh it seemed. It's a fantastic interview. I mean, I actually just reread it this morning. 
there's something about your questions which are so simple in a way, but they provoke these really, really interesting answers in him. This one question you asked him about this photograph of Robert Maplethorpe that he did, and he spoke about his eyes, you know, meeting Robert Maplethorpe early on and not knowing whether he was going to make it or not. This is before he met Sam Wagstaff. But he always talked about this glimmer that he had in his in these blue eyes that he knew that he had something. It was a quality in him that, like, he knew he had something. You know, we've been talking about Nan Gold, and I feel like you've even mentioned that when you first met her, she had a similar quality. There was something in her personality, a certain kind of charisma that you kind of just knew that she would make it. Everyone be, knew. Everyone yeah. knew? Yeah. And she encouraged people to think that too. She was <laughs> self-mythologizing at 18. How so? So she had done all the black and white work. She hadn't been to art school, really. She hadn't... Well, she she was like the photographer for whatever alternative school she went to that was very lo- loose and unstructured in high school. She was the school photographer or the photographer for the newspaper the magazine or something but I don't think she'd taken really a photo course so she got her film developed by the corner drugstore and she'd get back the little prints and the negatives and her roommates would go through the pictures taking what they wanted and editing and you know whatever and she would put the negatives in this plastic bag which was from a vintage clothing store called Dazzle. So when I first met her, she would frequently mention the Dazzle bag (laughs) of negatives, if anybody, because she had thousands of pictures in the Dazzle bag that hadn't been printed and properly and that we all didn't know. You know, I mean, this was working from the awareness that we were all interested in her because she was charismatic and um, the work she was making that we were seeing was great. But she was like, well, you should see the dazzle bag. (laughs) (laughs) And then that spring, this photographer, Lawson Little, who she was having an affair with, who was a graduate student at RISD with Henry Ornstein, went into the darkroom with her and helped her print a show that she had a little community center. And she printed about, I don't know, about 20 of the best pictures from the Dazzlebag period. Mm-hmm. And they were fantastic. Just, I mean, they have since been printed and released, um, you know, and she maybe, you know, when you're printing, you make two or three. So she gave me about 12 of them. Mm-hmm. So w- I'm curious what else you were doing at the time or how you came to the work that appears in your book, Detour. Most of that work was made in... In the 90s. There's just one picture from the 80s. One picture from the 80s. From so the- I was working similarly from the 70s on. I'd already taken a course in color printing in Cambridge. I was photographing black and white and color through all the subsequent periods. But the difference in the work is not so much the content. The difference in the work was a certain structure and stylization, maybe, or a more um, structured composition that came into the work in the 90s. And that one picture from the 80s is a picture that has that kind of space and structure around the two figures in the frame Mm -hmm. that is more like the work in the 90s. I also started using T-Max 3200 film when it came out in the late 80s. And that allowed me to photograph in a lot of dark situations without a flash. And I used that film exclusively through that whole decade. Everything in Detour was shot on that film, Hmm, except the one picture from the 80s that was made before that film came out. Hmm. What led to that? All your photos have a very particular sense of space. So it's a kind of distance, I think. It's a kind of intimate distance. Yeah. Which is the thing, is the quality that that is so interesting and moving Maybe, about it. you know, I mean, it's it, kind of easy to say this. Yeah. I don't know if it's really true that it came out of that, but I, I suppose 
when I started working in theater. Mm-hmm. And then you're moving figures around on a stage, you know, and seeing them with that kind of distance. I mean, I didn't do a lot of directing, but I did some. Mm-hmm. And I guess more than that, I started seeing a lot of theater. When I lived in London from 85 to 87, I saw, you know, maybe three plays a week. Mm-hmm. And it was cheap. I also was writing for Japanese magazine, so I was comped. And I was writing more about experimental theater. I think what was really interesting to me in experimental theater was the use of space, of, you know, getting off the proscenium or figuring out ways to use space differently in theater. Mm-hmm. However, I'm also a big film person. And when I look at last year, I saw a couple of Antonioni films again. I saw those originally when I was in college. I took a course in Italian neorealism. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Antonioni, more than anybody, was this huge influence for me and um, seeing figures in space and the space of rooms, particularly. And when I saw La Notte, again, I was just like, oh, I just I couldn't believe. Just like, there's so many scenes and compositions that are just jaw-dropping. And are exactly the thing that, you know, I'm always hoping to find in a location, in a situation. Um, But it's really hard to, you know, usually, and especially in New York, because uh, most people's apartments are too small. You feel like you need certain spaces in order to create that sense of space? Yeah. Yeah. You know, like just in this apartment, the fact that there's this interior hallway Mm -hmm. and what that does with perspective and space even though I haven't photographed in here very much, but um, it creates more angles and frames. And so funny that you're saying that, though, because I feel like I'm th- I'm trying to think of your pictures, and they all seem like they're in quite intimate spaces, in bedrooms, in bathrooms, in kitchens, and. But I think and, and, in the '90s work, you feel the structure of the room more than like in the '80s, mm-hmm. you know. So I mean, since I'd seen those films in the '70s. I don't know why it took so long for that to show up, but maybe it was also this thing about theater. Mm -hmm. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to my conversation with Alan Frame that we recorded at his home in Sunnyside, Queens. To see more of Alan's work and keep updated on the show, follow us on Instagram at Magic Hour Podcast. 
various kinds of programming to bring people in. And it was the work that I had done in Mississippi, which is more, because the subject matter feels more like documentary kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then it was also disappointing. The kind of feedback was so superficial. It was just like one of those, is that all there is moments. And I remember also calling Sam Wagstaff, who I didn't know. I just cold called him and told him that I had this show that I'd like for him to come and see. And he said, how much were the prints? And there were a few hundred dollars. And he said, oh, I never spend more than $50. (laughs) And I was just like, then fuck you. I mean, I didn't say that, but I was just like, didn't pursue it any further. Like you actually just wanted him to see the work. Well, and hopefully buy it too, but mainly just see it, you know. Yeah. I had this, you know, some kind of inflated sense of myself and some arrogance and whatever coming out of Harvard too that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that experience then of having my first big solo show there in New York was, it just felt like nothing. And so at the same time, I was invited to be in a couple of Gary Indiana plays as a performer. And entering that world, as eccentric as that was to be directed by Gary and to be among all these downtown cult actors, I mean, it was really interesting. But um, I liked that world better. You know, there was more feedback. There's more the feedback. Theater, the theater, theater world. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it felt more human. And that led to my adapting and directing these monologues by David Wonorowicz, which I did with someone named Kirsten Bates, who was an aspiring actor. While he was alive? or Yeah. And before he was very known. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, working with friends who were actors. Nan was in it. Suzanne Fletcher, who's in her work, was in it. She, she was an actress. Brian, Nan's boyfriend, was in it. My friend Butch Walker was in it. Um, and, the, you know, just having that kind of contact was all of that was more fun than the art world, for sure, which I found, you know, very pretentious and cold. Mm-hmm. And then when I was in London, I just was in a theater scene. And I co-wrote and directed a play and again, that was, was like being around actors and artists. and There was an immediacy to it yeah. that was palpable. It felt good. Yeah. But then you come back to photography. Photography draws you back in. So you're disenchanted with the art world, but... Yeah, what happened with theater was that when I came back from London, I came back to, you know, a downtown theater scene that was ravaged by AIDS. Mm-hmm. and everything had become more expensive and it was just I did do some more experimental theater pieces using the projection of my photography and my grandmother's mm-hmm. about my family but the idea of you know in that sense the idea of like really working with a community felt very difficult because that community was so blasted by AIDS so then I guess just going back to this solo work with a camera is what happened. But did your did your headspace change at all? Was it did it become maybe less about that early ambition that you had about you know about being a certain kind of person in the art world? I think what um, encouraged me was the big show that Nan curated mm-hmm. for Artist Space, the first big show of art about AIDS that had been done in New York and maybe the second show in the country on that subject. And because of David Wonorovich's controversy and the writing that he did for that show. What was the controversy? He wrote an essay for the catalog that um, sort of a stream of consciousness rant against some of the politicians and religious figures who were you know, reactionary on the subject mm-hmm. of AIDS. And safe sex and all of that. And funding. And um, 
the National Endowment for the Arts withdrew its funding for the show because of the essay and it created this sort of cause celeb in the art world in New York and against censorship and David was in the middle of that and the show was in the middle of that so but seeing that our work and the show could get that level of national attention and could feel important and urgent I think got me back into it Mm -hmm. but about six or seven years ago I pretty much stopped photographing for a while and was just writing a play. And going back into theater then, you know, I had a lot of thoughts of why did I ever leave it and this is really what my talent is and this is, you know, where I'm happy. There's been a lot of feedback loops in your life. Yeah. Do you feel that you almost you need those counterpoints in order to thrive in the thing that you're doing? But it's, it's true. I felt very ambivalent about being an artist, a visual artist. Mm-hmm. Always. Because I, I didn't grow up as one. Mm-hmm. And in this culture to be one, I think is humiliating and infantilizing. And as somebody who teaches, who was a director, who takes charge, who wants authority, claims authority, you know, to be in that vulnerable position of the artist in American society always made me really uncomfortable mm-hmm. you know like um, who are you to decide this and who are you to um, control you know mm-hmm. I was the rebel in me and I don't know I was um, always balking at sort of establishment ideas and attitudes mm-hmm. or authority just authority you know over me as an artist mm-hmm. you know there there are artists who love the attention from and seek the attention from curators and gallerists and so on and so on and that always made me feel uncomfortable you didn't feel like you wanted that because there wanted was to... too much of the that you know I guess you're like put in a position where you're not you're I called it infantilizing but you know let's let's say it's um I don't know maybe it was my immaturity to not be able to deal with feedback in a certain way but no, I'm not going to put it on me. I really am going to put it on the society. <laughs> it's, uh, it, I mean, because there is something really identifiable in American culture that's like very anti-art and and very superficial about art. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. And you know, um, in many other other cultures, the status of an artist is much more respected. And here you're constantly having to prove yourself, no matter what age you are and what track record you have. It's always back to zero. Mm -hmm. Do you still feel the same way now, though? Because I do. Yeah, yeah? because you have you know you you have exhibitions now. You show in galleries. You sell prints. You're you're in the art world. But you know, American galleries versus my experience with European galleries, for instance. They want to see the work before they offer you the next show, no matter what you've done, mm-hmm. no matter what confidence they may pretend to have in you. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, what work is it you want to show? Well, let's see that work. Well, I don't like that work. I'm not going to show you, you know. Mm-hmm. And Europe, when I was showing with galleries, it would be like, what do you want to show? Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a confidence in the vision of the artist, which is a much more respectful sophisticated proposition whereas here it's just like you um can feel micromanaged and yeah it's it's a bit more of a powerless feeling here like you're at the mercy of yeah and also i mean i mean new york is a pretty harsh and competitive place so you know at this age i should be on friendly terms with other you know, important people in the field, but, you know, one has still not even met them 
or met them only briefly, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. There's just a lot of hierarchy still to deal with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then there's the hierarchy of one's successful friends, too. Mm-hmm. Because people tend to know people that are sort of at the same level. As a teacher, I wound up knowing a lot of emerging people, which is really great. And that's the work that I'm seeing most often. And and I really appreciate that. But um, there are all these hierarchies, like certain friends that I had who, as soon as they became famous, you just never saw them again. Mm-hmm. I can think of four people like that. Mm-hmm. They're just too busy with... Yeah, and I yeah. understand how busy they are. I'm that busy. Mm-hmm. I'm just not that famous. Right. <laughs> so, for the past little while, you haven't been photographing. You've been writing mostly. I yeah. did mostly concentrate on that play for about five years. What was the play about? It's about my mother and brother after my father died in 2005. Mm-hmm. So, it's about them between 2008 and 2011 when they were sharing uh, when my brother moved back and started living with my parents mm-hmm. and basically my mother and brother living together these two iconic southern figures he was a big southern jock football player your dad my brother your brother sorry yeah and my mother you know, was brought up as the Southern Belle, but, you know, I mean, she wound up being a school teacher. Um, and there's another side of her, but, you know, it's, she's kind of iconic as a Southern type woman. Mm-hmm. And what it was like for them in later years to cohabit and unravel together in their narcissism and eccentricity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's something that I'm curious about. You know, you've there's it seems to be two two lines in your work. One it has to do with the work that you make. I guess it was more has been more focused in theater and filmmaking activity, which is work that you've done which is very close to home. And then there's this other line which is work that you've made more out in the world. You know, most of your pictures in Detour are are made you know, while traveling around the world and kind of going out there. Is that always another ambivalence in you in terms of what you want to deal with? Or is there this... No, it's usually a very clear thing. It's the thing about taking the pictures of people traveling is that even though I'm in a foreign place, I know those people Mm -hmm. too. You're always photographing people that you know. Pretty much. Yeah. But how I know them can be... um, a kind of wide range of experience. Like um, some people might be the girlfriend or boyfriend of the person that I know who's mm-hmm. in that room or in that scene who I then focus on. Mm-hmm. But being in the situation as someone known and as a friend and accepted in that way gives me a permission to do what I want to do as a photographer, mm-hmm. which is important to me. Like uh, with strangers, it's much harder to feel that sense of permission mm-hmm. and what I imagine, what I project onto them about what they think of me is, you know, mm-hmm. kind of makes it difficult. Mm-hmm. Like I expect them to be wary of me. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I project that onto them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it also might just be the interest level that I have in them after taking the pictures, you know. There are some pictures of strangers that I did, you know, meet and talk to and photograph, but then I don't care about them as much as I do with, you know, the pictures of people that I've known. You care about the pictures. I care about the people that I've known, you know. Yeah. It's funny, I mean, I I understand that some people kind of um, lose their objectivity with the people that they know. Mm -hmm. It's hard for them to know what's a good picture and what's not a good picture when they know the person. And I'm the opposite. 
the more I know the person, the more I know objectively what's working or not working. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I th- well, maybe it's the way that I um, detach as part of my personality. Like this way of seeing well, as a kind of um, you know a directorial way of seeing that I'm always seeing that way. That Are you looking to try and show something about that person in a picture or is that person just an actor within your play, so to speak? Like you more of the latter. Like I you have a very intuitive sense of this ongoing fantasy life or drama, you know, mm-hmm. that um, is more of the latter. Mm-hmm. I don't think I arrive easily at it's like a pronounced sense of who somebody is that I want to portray. Right. After reading that Charles Henry Ford interview for the first time, I'm curious about how you became, you know, you talked about really wanting to meet him. Were you always interested in that generation of, of artists, that circle? Or was it him more in particular with his connection to the South? I may not have known that much about him when I was offered that interview. I had I know I had seen that film that he made. Um, it was lost and now it's been found again. But um, that he shot in Johnny Minotaur. Mm-hmm. I, I knew that he had made that film. I knew that he and his sister had had Salon salons in the Dakota Mm -hmm. but I didn't really know that much about him Mm -hmm. and then in preparation for the interview maybe I read The Young and Evil Mm -hmm. and I mean the the Young and Evil had such a contemporary sense of the of a kind of a moral set of values by these young people living in New York that felt so contemporary. Mm-hmm. Speaking of detachment, and um, they preyed upon the people of the Algonquin Roundtable, you know, the, the generation of Dorothy Parker and all those people who were famous for their sort of salon at the Algonquin Hotel. Mm-hmm were a bit older than Charles and his friends and they came along at 20 and went up there to sort of hustle them. Mm-hmm. And that's in the young and evil. I mean, they're all little hustlers kind of mm-hmm. with easy relationships with each other and just, you know, and it's also also very queer and um, trans, bisexual and hetero and everything all in the same story. And, um, you know, all having a certain ruthlessness that felt so contemporary. And talking to him was fascinating because, you know, he just had this kind of um, wit and lack of sentimentality that was like, you know, like the writing in The Young and Evil from 1930. Hmm. I feel like my generation became more sentimental in the 60s with all the sort of hippiedom and taking on those values of like uh, talking about love and caring and you know well-being etc etc whereas there was this cynicism and sophisticated previous art generations that was you know not allowed so much mm-hmm. in my um well, was it or was it? Is that true? I mean, because I, I feel like the 80s in New York were so brutal and people were quite dishy. And there was this thing, you know, about New York attitude. You never hear anything about that today. But in the time, people said that a lot. People had attitude, you know. Mm-hmm. It just meant that they felt free to be snarky. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's been somewhat, like, I feel like, the end of all that was when the end of the 80s and that in the 90s sort of brought in this kind of like much more prosperous New York and all the have a good day kind of chain store platitudes that, you know, the phony, <laughs> fake, all of that sort mm-hmm. of stuff, proliferation of all of that phoniness. And it maybe 
the thing about Charles, though, was because he was Southern also, he had the politeness and certain idea about manners and politeness, but still this kind of witty cynicism. Mm -hmm. Or openness. I don't know if it was really cynicism. But, um, and then I've been reading, you know, about the 50s and the Frank O'Hara people. Within art circles and literary circles, people were out and it was like way before Stonewall and there was no big deal about it. And people were doing what they wanted to, Mm -hmm. saying what they wanted to, sleeping with who they wanted. You know, it was all this freedom. We think of that time as being more oppressed, but, you know, to actually read about their lifestyles in in New York City. That also all feels much more contemporary than you would expect. Mm. And also without a kind of sentimentality around it. Right. Thanks so much for having me here. It's been a real pleasure talking. Oh, I'm so glad to do this, yeah. That was my conversation with Alan Frame that we recorded at his home in Sunnyside, Queens. This episode was produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and it was edited by Crystal Duhame. Original music for the show by Adam Feingold. To find out more about the show, visit us at magichourpodcast.org and follow us on Instagram at magichourpodcast. If you have a sec, give us a review on iTunes. It helps others discover the show and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks so much for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.